Uh, it is Labor Day, and uh, Labor Day weekend. Tomorrow's Labor Day. And uh, we, you know, we, we, as we talk about Labor Day and, and what it means to labor, I uh, want to start us off as we are, we're walking through Romans, studying Romans together, but I want to start on, on a somber note um, and thinking about the way that some of the world, in fact, too much of the world, um, engages in, in labor. And according to the um, International Labor Organization, they, they, it has been said that, that there's approximately 168 million children between the ages of 5 and 17 today engaged in what we call child labor. And most of these situations are, are places where they, their, their own health is endangered, where their own safety is endangered, where they are prohibited, uh, if not significantly uh, hindered, from experiencing moral and educational development anywhere close to what, to what we and our children have known um, in the comfort of, of our state of Alaska. Uh, on top of that, um, 75% of those are under the age of 14. Imagine your child, if you have a child under the age of 14, living that sort of a reality. They say that there are approximately 300,000 children today, many of whom are under the age of 10, who are enlisted as child soldiers in their country or amongst their people groups. Imagine what that would be like. There are 10 million children today, who have been counted, and we know the numbers are much higher, who have been sold into slavery, child trafficking, those who have been forced into recruitment for prostitution, for pornography, and all sorts of illicit use. That gives us a different perspective on the word labor over Labor Day weekend, doesn't it? And you imagine for a moment being born into a world like that. That's your normal. That, that's your reality. You've been, you've been born into a world of terror, a world of abuse, a world of abandonment and rejection, a world of exploitation. And that's all you know. Then I want you to imagine in one of those children's shoes. And there's this wonderful, God-sent couple that comes to you. And they say, we want to rescue you out of that horrible world. We want you to come and live in our home and call us mommy and daddy. And we want, instead of you being a frightened little child who doesn't know who's going to hurt you next, we want you to come. We just painted a brand new bedroom for you. And we want you to play with all these new toys that we bought for you. And we want you to join the Boys and Girls Club soccer team. And we want you to sit at our dining room table and eat macaroni and cheese until you pass out. And we're going to have this tickle fight on the living room floor together. We need to go to your new school and make a friend. And never wonder again if you belong and if you're loved. And your new daddy, he says, welcome home. You're my child. Imagine what it would be like to go from that world and be transferred through adoption into this brand new world. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were born into a life of slavery and bondage. Infant enemies of God. He says we were born children under wrath. That we were all born into this reality in which we are in bondage to sin and to death. An alienation from God. But at just the right time, God sent Jesus into this world 
to make it possible for him to adopt us out of that world of slavery, that world of sin. And he invites us into his new home. And he says, I, everything that I have belongs to you, which, by the way, is the universe and beyond. And you don't have to be afraid anymore, little one. You can call me Daddy. And the central verse that we're going to be looking at today is in, is in Romans 8, 15. It says, but you have received the, adop- uh, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what our text is going to do today, I think Paul is, is doing, he's going to take an intimate look at our relationship, our acceptance with God in Jesus as adoption as children. And in that context, He wants to speak to us about our ultimate weapon that we have to defeat sin in our lives and to grow into Christ-likeness. Last week, we began a a, a five-week walk through the the, uh, eighth chapter of Romans. We said that John Piper called this, um, as as many others have, the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's been said that it's the brightest jewel in the setting of all of Scripture. This is the apex of the Christian life. And and what we're going to see, last week we saw that we've been given this security in Christ. The the Spirit has has given these gifts, and we saw one of the things that we've been given in Christ is no condemnation. That we saw that when we inevitably, as believers, experience this Romans 7 type failure, we try to please God and we fall on our faces. So what we've been given, God does not pour out his wrath and condemnation on us. Why? Because Jesus absorbed every last ounce of it on the cross for us. And not only have we, in the negative sense, received no condemnation, we've also received a new spirit. That we said that the spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of us. And then we said in verse 2, we learned this beautiful truth that just like an airplane can experience freedom from, from the law of gravity because of a new law, the law of aerodynamics, that you and I can experience freedom from the law of sinning and dying by this new law operating in us called the spirit of life. And he set us free from sin and death. And the spirit, not only have we been given a new spirit, we've been given a new walk. He says that we're no longer called to walk according to the flesh, to live according to the sinful desires of the heart, but to walk according to the spirit in us. Now, does that, that does not mean that our new nature will afford us to walk forward in sinless perfection from the moment we we're saved, right? We all know that from, from experience. But what it does mean is our, the general direction of our lives will arc more and more toward becoming like Jesus and living a life of love, joy, peace, patience. The fruit of the Spirit will continue to be manifest in us. Now today, in, in Romans 12, uh, 17, verses 12 through 17, uh, we are going to see the Holy Spirit is called the, the Spirit of Adoption. And as the Spirit of Adoption, we're going to see two more beautiful truths, two more things that we've been given uh, through the Holy Spirit, things that we need more than anything in the universe and that we've been given freely because of Jesus. So let's look at these together. Number one, we've been given the spirit of adoption, and and he is the one that's going to kill sin in and through us. Verse 12 says, So then, brothers, or brethren, if you read an older translation, now this includes the cistern as well. Uh, This Greek word means everybody, all right? So we love you, man, woman, child. uh, you're, You're all loved and included in the family of God. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
See, we no longer, he says, we no longer live under obligation to the sin nature. It is no longer our master. And we've been seeing that through Romans 6 through 8. Now, remember, we said that the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death anymore. You today no longer have to sin, no longer have to die. You've been set free from that. Amen. Verse 13, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He says, if you keep on sinning, you will, and then the Greek here meant experience a death-like existence, okay? Anybody ever seen a zombie before? Hopefully not. <laughs> We're going to have to do some counseling, kind of work through that. Um, but what, so it, in other words, a, a zombie in theory is somebody who is alive, is, is the walking dead, right? You've seen that show. Uh, you shouldn't. Repent of that. That's a bad show. Um, <laughs> kidding. Um, but you could be alive. He says you could be walking and talking and eating and yet you are experiencing a death-like existence in your relationship to God. Spiritually, you're dead. Now, I think in one sense, in this verse, Paul is saying that if, if you continue a life of obedience to the sinful nature, it shows that you're not a child of God. That's not the way a child of God truly lives, if there's a new spirit in you. And you're going to continue on into a Christless eternity of wrath and separation. But I also believe this passage and other passages in the New Testament indicate that we have a choice as believers at times to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit, to walk according in obedience to the sinful desires or to the spirit's desires. And when we do that, when we walk in the flesh, what we experience is separation, listen, fellowship from God, not relationship. There is a difference. There's a difference. If you're fighting as a couple, you're having a pretty bad fight and spanned a few days, now, that's, that's still your spouse, right? Like, you're still, you're still married, but you're probably not going to be canoodling on the couch tonight, right? Like, you're probably not going to be doing the lady in the tramp spaghetti thing, right? Like, there's, there's something between you in relationship right now that, that you're not, that there's something between you. You're in your own corners. Still relationship, but a lack of fellowship. And when we're walking in the flesh, we're experiencing a separation in fellowship from God. You can't walk in light and darkness at the same time. If we're walking in the flesh, we're not walking with Jesus. He's still our Father. But there's, there's a brokenness in, in fellowship at the moment. But then he shows us the alternative here in verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He shows us what it looks like to walk in, in the Spirit and, and what will happen. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to get grammatically nerdy on you for a second, so, so try to stay, stay with this thought. Um, he, this is what we call the indicative mood, not the imperative mood. When he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. What this means, imperative means a command. Do this. Indicative means this, this indicates who, who you are. And what he's saying here is not primarily giving a command, but he's saying this kind of lifestyle is an indication of who you really are. If you're a believer, if you have a new spirit in you, you will be the kind of person who is putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what will manifest in, in your life. And you will experience vibrant, fruit-bearing relationship to God and, and others. There was a man named John Owens. He was a follower of Jesus from the 1600s. Uh, his most popular work was called The Mortification of Sin. He also kind of embodies that in that picture, right? <laughs> Bro needs some color, right? It's, this is rough. Uh, but to mortify, it means to put to death. And so the, he, he talked a lot about how we do what John's calling us, or Paul, excuse me, is calling us to do in Romans 8 here, to put to death the deeds of the body. In one of his most famous lines, he said, be killing sin 
or it will be killing you. We, we have to understand what, what the stakes are here. He says, if you're not actively, aggressively seeking to put to death sin, it will actively and aggressively be looking to kill you. And you and I are engaged in this battle every single day. So how does Paul, according to this passage, tell us, instruct us on how to kill sin? Four four things we need to recognize if we're going to experience this kind of victory. Number one, recognize there is a war within you. Now, it's important to understand we are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to sin anymore. There's no longer slavery, but there is a battle. There's a difference. There's no longer slavery, but, but there is a battle. You remember in, in Romans 7, we talked about that. There is a daily war where the flesh and its desires, the sin nature that's still rooming in our earthly body, is warring against the, the, the desires of the new spirit. They're going back and forth at each other. Think about it this way. You remember Israel's history? When they were in bondage in Egypt, they had to do what the Egyptians told them to do. They were in bondage to the Egyptians. But then God freed them from that bondage and brought them into the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now... Were they in bondage anymore? They weren't. But there were still a lot of enemies that they had to drive out. There was still a battle to be fought. Now that was the Lord doing it through them. He gave them the victory, right? I haven't seen a lot of walls fall down by tooting horns, right? This is God's work. But you read Joshua, there's a real battle going on. In the New Testament, we're called the stand firm When he talks about battle language, stand firm. Why? Because we've already been given the ground of victory in Jesus. Romans 6 says the old nature has been crucified, stripped of its power. But we also see James say you got to resist the devil and then he will flee from you. There is still an enemy that we are fighting and, and he says here to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, this word here, talking about our physical body, he's not saying your physical body is evil, although some mornings we certainly feel like that, amen? What he's saying, what he's saying is that in this mortal body, listen, we're going to get a new body one day that is immortal. But while we're living in this fallen, unredeemed body, the sin nature still resides here. And as long as we live in this mortal, unredeemed body, there will be this battle. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that there's a battle. Number two, we need to recognize the presence of, of the sin in our flesh. There is a sin nature in our mortal body. It has been disarmed. Christ has defeated it, but it's still there, and we can very much still hear its lies. If you remember after September 11th, um, sorry for keep bringing up all these downers this morning, but uh, we initially had trouble identifying the real enemy, didn't we? Like, like we knew, I mean, now in hindsight, we kind of see how things kind of worked itself out, but, but at the beginning of those first couple days, we didn't know, right? Osama bin who? Like, we, had no, we, didn't, we didn't know the Taliban from the Teletubbies. We had, we had no idea what, what this enemy was, and, and we found that it's a lot harder to fight against an invisible enemy like terrorism than it is in the more traditional kind of nation-on-nation war. And it took us some time. In a lot of ways, we're still kind of figuring out how to identify the enemy. And you and I in our lives, we have to identify the real enemy, the main problem that we have in our lives. And listen, Our main problem, our main problem is not the government, right? Left or right. The main problem in our lives, the main enemy is not culture. The the main enemy in our lives is not our educational system, the borough, right? Like, chill, chill. The main enemy is not gluten, right? As much as I make fun of it, like, that's not the main enemy, even to our mortal bodies. The main enemy is not smartphones or social media. Listen, it's not millennials, 
as fun as it is to blame them for everything, right? And it's not even Satan and his posse. Yeah, they like to gang up on the flesh, but listen, Satan's the tempter, but our, our flesh, our sinful nature, is, is very capable of sinning without the devil. The main enemy is the sin nature within me and within you. We have to identify that properly. Every, every morning when I spend time with, for the Lord, or, or most mornings, I pray this prayer from Psalm 139. Many of you know it, recognize it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And, and as I pray that, I think about the day that I lived before. So this morning I would have thought about Saturday. And I think about the way my, my life, the, the things I did, the things I said, the thoughts I had. And I ask the Lord to, to expose to me the specific sins in my life. You know, what, and what did that look like? You know, who, who was I gossiping about? Who did I treat like an object and, and not a person? Who, who, who was I being self-centered toward and not loving toward? What outbursts of anger did I have? Or maybe inbursts, right? Like on the outside, everything's great, but inside, ah, you know, you're, you're kind of stuffing that in. Some lustful thoughts you might have had. And to be honest enough to say, God, please uncover my sin. Let me see it. This is what the Holy Spirit will do in us. You don't have to go searching and kind of just fine-tune comb all day long. Spirit will reveal the sins he's having you look at and deal with. And and what we need to look for is not just the obvious ones, like the sexual sins or drunkenness or kind of some of the ones we often think about. But what about the deeper core issues like pride, like self-righteousness, like envy? And what we need to understand is that we're not playing a game here. We're not playing a game. This is life and and this is death. And if we want to kill sin, we want to experience freedom from sin on a daily basis, we first must recognize that it's there and understand the stakes. If we're not killing it, it will be killing us, which takes us to the third thing we have to recognize. We have to recognize the only solution is death. The only solution to our sin is death. Now, I've been a homeowner for a little over a year now, and I love a lot of things about it, uh, but one of the most annoying things is maintaining a lawn, okay? And I've found these little mushrooms of mayhem this time of year sprouting up all over the place, right? These dandelions of death. My new favorite blog, How to Kill Dandelions the Right Way in the Name of Jesus, right? Come on. Come on. And and what, what I've found is the solution is not to just, like, improve the weeds, right? Like, if they're just happy, like, dress them up in cute little bonnets, try to, like, make them look prettier, and then I won't be annoyed by them. No, the only way to get rid of these monsters is to pull them up by their root. Death to my weeds, right? I'm, I'm, I'm working through it. Seeing some counselors. It's, it's good. We're, we're good. We're moving in the right direction. The solution to sin in our lives is not behavior modification. It's not just kind of dress up our sin and make it look prettier. The solution actually is not to even just primarily to improve your behavior. The only solution is death, that we must get to the root of our sin and kill it. You see, we can change the external behaviors on our own, right? I mean, think about what somebody can do without the Holy Spirit. Can an, can an unbeliever become sober? Absolutely, they do it all the time. Can an unbeliever go to church more? Yes, they can walk into this building more often. We can change our external behaviors without the Holy Spirit. But what we can't do without the Holy Spirit is change our hearts. And that's what we've been called to do. See, I can do a lot of good things with the wrong motives, the wrong heart, and it's still sinful. 
It's deeper than externals. Like, I can, I can stop yelling at somebody, but I can't stop the anger and pride in my heart. I can stop clicking on those websites. I can stop looking at people. I can stop looking to people all, all, all I can put a blindfold around my eyes, but I can't stop the lust in my heart. That has to be the Holy Spirit. See, we can do good things in the power of the flesh and not the power of the Spirit. I could go to church every single time the doors are open. I could read my Bible over and over and over again. But if I'm doing it with, with selfish motives, if I'm doing it to, man, look how great I am. If I'm doing it with this kind of bartering karma thing with God, like if I read my, my five chapters this morning, then, then you got to make the sunshine this weekend, right? Apparently some of you guys are reading your Bibles. Good job. You see, we can do good things. It's, it's, the question is not the external behaviors. Not that those are irrelevant, but the main question is, am I walking in the flesh or am I walking in the spirit? That's where the heart change, that's where the life change happens. And to actually stop the deeds of being proud and self-righteous and angry and jealous, the Holy Spirit has to pull that sin out by the root, put it to death. Number four, last thing we've got to recognize is to recognize it's the spirit that's doing the killing. It's not you, it's not me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. See, like we said, John 6, or excuse me, Romans 6, 6. We know, we read this, we, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Why? So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are, present tense, no longer slaves of sin. Jesus already defeated sin and death once and forever through his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're not killing something that's already been dead. What we're doing is, by faith, applying the truth of the crucifixion of our sin to make practical in our daily walk what is already true of us in position, in relationship to God. We are claiming the ground of victory, experiencing a daily crucifixion to that sin nature that Jesus already won for us on the cross. But how do we do this? Like, that's, that's very ambiguous, Justin. Like, how do we walk in that practically? I'm glad you asked. John Piper, he has an acronym. He used APTAT. We've talked about this before as believers. And, and, and please hear me. This is not like five easy steps to walk in, in the spirit, right? Buy now or, you know, your money back in 30 days. If it doesn't work, you know, supplies last. You know, we're not selling walking in the spirit. But these are some principles that we can put feet to to help kind of guide us as, as we try to figure out what this actually looks like in our lives. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of someone in your mind, your mind's eye, someone that you've been sinning against recently. Somebody, man, and maybe you're jealous of some things in their life, or you find yourself being judgmental, extremely critical of them. Like, maybe you are actively hating them, or really being indifferent, neglecting them, which is, which is really more of the opposite of, of love, is, is indifference and apathy. And I see some of the spouses looking at each other out of the corners of their eyes. We've got counselors on standby after the service. That'll be great. Um, so I want you to picture that person and the active ways in which you are sinning against them. Now, we can change our externals. We can, we can treat them differently, but we can't, in our own hearts, produce the kind of love that considers them before ourselves. So we want to apply these, these, five, these five things to, to your current situation. The first one that, that Piper talks about is admit. Admit, which means simply just confess, agree with God, and I, there is sin in my life, and there's nothing I can do to kill it. There's nothing I can do to stop it, and, and, and that I cannot love this person in my own strength. We have to admit that. We got to start, start by stopping the effort on our own strength and admitting where we're at. The second one is to pray. Pray for God to do in you what you can't do for yourself. Prayer is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, indication of our dependence on God. Are you talking to him about it? 
Are you coming to him and going, God, if I'm going to truly love this person, it's got to be the Holy Spirit producing that love in and through me. It can't be me, and it's got to be you. That level of dependence. And then T, trust a specific promise of God. And this is so important. For many of us, we kind of have this ambiguous idea, like God is good, things are good, I don't know. Like we're just going to kind of all work out. But we got to know what God really has given us and what he's really promised us. Otherwise, we might be claiming things that he never actually told us in his word, which means we got to be in the word. Like that's where life is. Are we in the word on a daily basis? And as we read, we look for these specific promises. Like one, one for this, we can think, and, and this same God, Paul says in Philippians 4, who takes care of me, will, here's the promise, will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He says, look, in Christ, you've been given everything you need for everything he's called you to do through his riches. He'll supply it. So if God's asked you, and we know he has, love your neighbor as yourself, we know he's called you to love that person that you're right now actively sinning against, and we can trust the specific promise that if he's asked you to love them, he will supply what you need to do it. Trust the promises, the specific promises of God. And then we get to A, which is act. We actually have to do something. Listen, we do not lay in our bed and hope that he, like, grabs us by the strings and picks us up Pinocchio-style and makes us go do these things. you got to get out of bed. And you got to move forward by, by faith. you got to actually go have a conversation with that person. And you got to stop speaking those words that are destroying them and start speaking those words that build them up. And you got to take those current thoughts captive that are in your mind. And you got to change the way that you're treating them. And you got to go take them to lunch. Or you got to serve them in a way that's going to, that's going to build them up. Like we, got, we, we are called to be active, trusting that as we go, as we go to interact with them, that these promises that we just claimed are going to come true. You see, do not hear me saying in all of this that there is no effort or action on our part. It says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. We are very active in this, but ultimately we got to know the source that we are in prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit as we go forward. And then the last one is, is to thank God. Thank God for what he just did. In hindsight, after you've done that action and you look back, you say thank you. What were you taught as a little kid? When someone gives you a gift, say thank you, right? Or your parent would whack you on the back of the head, right? So thank you acknowledges what? That someone just did something for you. That someone just gave something to you. So as we look back and, and go, man, I can't believe God. Thank you. The way that you through me showed patience to that person, showed forgiveness to that person, acceptance and, and love enjoy in that, and just thank him for what he just did through you by the Holy Spirit. This is not passive. This is very active, but it's in complete dependence on what the Holy Spirit can produce in us that we never can for ourselves. The Holy Spirit will kill sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit uh, of adoption directs us to our fathers. He directs us to our fathers. So that's verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now look at what he says. He goes, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now remember we've been talking about this. Whenever we see words like therefore or for, we ask, get ready, what's the for? Therefore. Hey, there we go. You've been listening. What's the for therefore? What is that connection word showing us? And at first I had some trouble with this. Where I'm going, I don't see the connection between 13 and 14. Like he's talking about killing sin, and now he's talking about being sons and daughters of God. Like I don't see, I don't see the connection. It's not clear. But as, as you look closer, and as, you, as it's through some study and uh, peeking at other people's sermon notes, uh, this is kind of what I came up with. Um, first of all, verse 13, he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and look, he's going to connect that with verse 14, if you are led by the Spirit. And what's going to show us here, to be led by the Spirit, it means to, to be willingly led. 
Like in, in, in chapter 6, when we said offer our bodies to God as those alive from the dead, there is a willing yielding and a surrender, saying, God, take all of me. I'm giving myself to you. It's like those, um, the Holy Spirit's kind of like one of those self-driving cars that's coming any day now. I, can't, I know some of you guys think that's the apocalypse. Like this is all, the world's going down with self-driving cars. I personally can't wait for them. There's a lot of things I'd rather do in the car than drive, right? So I'm, I'm excited for that. Come, come quickly. But um, when you get into this, this car, not only will it, it tell, you can tell, it tells you, um, where to go, but it will also take us there. Well, what's our job? It's just to get in it, right? To abide, to hand over the car keys and let the car take you there. And in the same way, we said last week, we've got to have the spiritual gas in the gas tank. If we're going to go where God tells us to go, the Holy Spirit is going to lead us and he's going to be the one that empowers us to go where we go. So how do you kill sin? Verse 13, be led by the Spirit. Verse 14. The other thing he connects here is you will live, and that's connected with the sons of God, being sons and and daughters of, of God. The only ones who will experience real life, real living, are those who are God's children. So think about it this way. If death is separation from God, if, if, if death-like existence is being his enemy, then a life living, actually living, is being connected to God in relationship. And he says here that relationship is one of a father and his, his children. So then in verse 15, what he's going to do is he's going to put that all together and show what the Holy Spirit has to do with us being sons and daughters of God. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, this is, this is incredible. What he's showing us here, Paul is answering the question, how does the Holy Spirit lead, and how does his leading prove, show, that we are sons and daughters of, of God? And what he says here is the spirit of adoption, he's going to confirm in our hearts that we are God's children. He connects us to the Father, and he confirms, he confirms that relationship. So you take this back to how the Holy Spirit leads. How does he enable us to put to death the deeds of the body? Well, he's going to show us here what this looks like. First of all, what it's not. He says, you did not receive the spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. You did not receive a spirit of fear that leads us back into slavery. So, for example, I can, I can force people into something by, by, by physical exertion. Like, if I took this remote and, and I came over to, it was, well, I forgot, what's your name again? Reese, now, this is a bad, this is a bad example because I think Reese is actually larger than me, but let's just, uh, stronger than me, but let's just, let's just play this out. I said, Reese, I am sick and tired of clicking my own remote. I want you to do it. And Reese goes, I don't want to do it. I, I don't care. You're going to do it. And I grab his hand, and I take the remote, and I jam it in there, and I take his finger, and I start jamming it forward, and I say, you do it. And he starts resisting because I'm so much stronger than Reese. I can force him into this. I say, do it. And he goes, fine, I'll do it. And he's, and he's crying and he's clicking it and I'm forcing his finger. Now, is he, you're not scared of me for a second, are you? He's like, he's in a biker gang. Like, I picked the wrong guy to do this illustration. I can, listen, I can get Reese to externally comply out of fear. But can I change Reese's heart? Can, can, I get, can I make him trust me? Can I make him willingly follow me where I lead him? Can I get him to willingly, and in a trust-based relationship, do what I ask him to do? No, no, I can't. And what he says here is the Holy Spirit is not coming in like a bully forcing us into submission to God. He's not a spirit of slavery leading us through fear. that You have to do it or God's going to take you out. And what he says is he's a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
And this is an amazing thing that God does, and it's, it's two different directions between our heart and God's heart. You, go, you, you flip back to Romans 5, it says God's love has been poured into our heart through who? Through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So here's what the Spirit does. He pours the love of the Father into our hearts. He reminds us, this is your new Father. He loves you, and he's for you, and he's never going to leave you. And then the other way, he directs our hearts back to the Father's heart, back here in, in verse 15. By who, by you, but, excuse me, but you have received the adoption, the spirit, okay, let's start that over. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom? How do we cry, Abba, Father? Through the power of the Spirit. And it's interesting here, he uses these two words, cry, and he uses the word Abba, which is the Aramaic word for, basically, it's the intimate term for father. We often would translate that daddy. We cry out father. He goes, listen, this is not just the Holy Spirit in us kind of like confirming, like, yes, on paper, like legally and doctrinally, I ascertained the fact that he is my father. No, he says, emotionally, at the core of who we are, we cry, we scream out to him in full dependence and affection, daddy. Daddy. I love the way John Piper said this. He said, the testimony of the Spirit is not a premise from which we deduce that we are his, the children of God. This is not just a, a logic intellectual exercise. He says, it is a power by which we delight in being the children of God. Through the Holy Spirit, our hearts cry out, Father, I trust you. I, I trust that whatever you ask me to do, wherever you ask me to go, if you ask me to put that thing down because it's bad for me, I'll put that thing down because I trust that it's bad for me. If you say you have a better way for me, I trust that you have a better way for me. This isn't slavery through fear. This is a fatherly relationship led by love and affection. So, and maybe, maybe some of you were adopted, and I don't know, I mean, here on earth, we can be all sorts of situations. Adoption's not always a great thing. But if you've been adopted into a good home, that, where there is a good father, like our heavenly father, a good mother, you've received not only all the, not all the, just the legal realities of a new name and a new inheritance, and you've also experiencing all the, the, the emotional realities of a love relationship a new mom and a new dad and a new family. And that's what we've been given. That's what we've been given. Verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here's the Holy Spirit bearing witness that we are his children. Remember when, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? What was he really at the heart of it trying to do? He was trying to get Jesus to doubt his own father, to question his son's status with his dad. Can you really trust him to meet all your needs, to give you the things that he's promised to give you? And he does the same thing in, in our lives. When you hear those whispers, you better shape up. God's going to whack you. And we know, we can know that those whispers are the enemy because the Holy Spirit is not enslaving us through fear. He's the witness that is confirming in our hearts there is no, no, no condemnation in Jesus. God is not, he is not against you. You are a child of Abba Father. And yes, the Lord will discipline those he loves. He will correct us. As we know uh, here on earth, like uh, good parents discipline their kids. But we're, we're, he's doing that out of love, not out of wrath. And he's moving us to become more and more like his, 
his son, Jesus, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we know that because of the promise. If you fast forward to verse 32, he says this, he did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He goes, if while you were enemies, Jesus, he gave up his only son to have a relationship with you. Now that you're his child, now that you call him Abba Father, you think he's going to hold back from anything? He's going to give us everything. This is a father you can trust. And when we're tempted to doubt him, when we're tempted to go to other things because we don't trust Abba Father, the Spirit is there to remind us and pour out the Father's love into our hearts and through him cry out back, I trust you, Daddy. I trust you, Abba Father. It's the Spirit's work in us. Last verse. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He's going to give us all things. Now, what does it mean to be an heir with Christ, to receive everything that Jesus has? Well, we we don't have time, but just because you got some blanks there, I want to show you some of the things that we inherit in Christ, and and you've got some some references there in your notes. He's going to give us the world. He's going to give us God himself as our inheritance. He's going to give us redeemed and glorified bodies. So yeah, not a bad inheritance, right? These are the things that are going to be freely given to us uh, through God to inherit uh, with Jesus. But then it kind of ends on this ominous note, and this will lead us into next week. It says in verse 17 that we're going to receive all these things, heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. So he says, as we follow Jesus, as we are led by the Holy Spirit, the road ahead will be marked with suffering. That if we're following Jesus, what was his path? His path to glory was through the cross. We're going to follow him. It will be a life marked with suffering in our, in our earthly flesh, or in, this, in this fleshly world. You're going to experience suffering if you're, if you're really following me. But what he promises here, and we're going to see next week, the promise is that even our suffering will end in incomparable joy. And maybe right now you feel like you're in, you're in that road of suffering and you don't see the joy at the end of the tunnel. We have to trust Abba, Father, when we doubt him, Listen to the Spirit reminding you that you can trust Daddy. Let's pray. Father, I know my heart, my, ho- my heart is prone to wander. I feel it. And I know that it's prone to not trust you and, and to run to other things that, that I think that I, can, that I can grab things off the shelf that will meet my needs in ways that I just, I struggle to believe that you will. And Father, I pray that, that we would depend, learn what it means, teach us how to depend on the Holy Spirit. That, that, that he would confirm in our hearts today. Some of us, I know brothers and sisters in this room, going through things all over the map where it can be very, very difficult through the suffering to trust that God is for us and not against us. I pray that we would listen to the Spirit as he uses his word to remind us that that's our Father, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and when you ask us through your spirit, to put things to death, to put certain things down and and do other things, that we will trust that your ways are higher than our ways, are better than our ways, and that we'll continue to follow you, to let the Holy Spirit direct us and empower us to take us where we're going. Father, we don't believe so often. Help our unbelief that we might trust who you say that you are and follow you in spirit-led dependence. It's by the power of the Spirit that we call you Daddy, and it's in Jesus' name that we can talk to you. Amen.